0: you always go to google.com.
1: Yeah, I always type in Google and then on Google, when I've got the actual Google page, I type in the official search bar of Google. That is how I Google.
0: Hi, I'm Orla. And I'm Sid. And this is The Fate Escape, a podcast where we talk about people who came up from nothing. Sid, who are we talking about this week?
1: This week, Orla, we are talking about Ella Fitzgerald.
0: Oh, shit! That's so yeah, good. Yeah, well, what
1: so... So you know who she is then?
0: She's on my list.
1: Oh, is she actually?
0: Yeah.
1: Oh, look at that. Jumping the gun. Well, she's it. claimed for the Sid army now, I'm afraid.
0: <laughs> Team Sid. Um, what we yeah. haven't told people is that at the end of... Um, when we finish the podcast, when we decide we're done, um, we're going to gather all of the people from the dead and have them fight in a battle um, to see who will be supreme. Um, me or you. So we'll see.
1: I feel like so far I'm winning.
0: No, I have Rasputin.
1: Okay, you have like and a someone... do w- witch man, right? But then I have a scientist. Yeah, and so then they I they have... So they balance out.
0: And then I have Judy Human, who is in a literal motorised power chair, so I'm bringing weaponry.
1: Well, okay, we'll get, we'll get on to Ella Fitzgerald, but that might not give you as much of an advantage as you think. But just so the audience know... Ella Fitzgerald was a famous jazz musician, you know, who basically worked and was famous throughout the 20th century. And just to give some uh, key highlights, well, achievements from her life, she won 13 Grammys and won the Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award in 1967 and is in the Grammy Hall of Fame. She got the National Medal of Art and the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the NAACP Award for Lifetime Achievement. She's got a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame and honorary doctorates from dartmouth Talladega, Talladega, Howard, and Yale Universities. She sold over 40 million albums, is America's first lady of song, and had perfect pitch.
0: Incredible. Wonderful. So amazing. Can we circle back to the fact that you said Dartmouth?
1: I heard myself say it. <laughs> Dartmouth. And actually, when we do it, I'm going to cut out that bit where I just said Dartmouth. And no, put, put no, 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 uh, no. I was reading, okay? Anyway. Um... And so just to add to this lifetime of achievement, we have to recognise the fact that Ella Fitzgerald was black. Um, And just, you know, coming up as one of the first... One of the first... I don't know if that's right. I'll come back to that. I'll find a better way to phrase that later. Um, But how much do you know about Ella Fitzgerald's personal life?
0: Actually, not that much. I know of her as the First Lady of Jazz. Um, Yeah. I know, um, you know some i think i probably know the amount that most people know like when you hear the name you see the face and you hear the voice but you don't actually know a lot about the woman behind it
1: yeah um well to be honest i i didn't know a huge amount i i like and i know also i well i knew about her and i knew a few of her songs like um summertime and dream a little dream of me come to mind um But then, even researching her life, she wasn't in her publicized life. She almost tried to cover a lot of things up. Mm. Um, Like uh, unlike Billie Holiday, who sort of embraced her background and sort of poured it into her music, which uh, you know, again, I'm sure it comes through Ella's music. She sort of didn't try and publicize it about her as a person. Yeah, um, which I just thought was interesting. Yeah, anyway, so, Ella Fitzgerald. So, she was born on the 25th of April, 1917, in Newport News, Virginia. Um, Her dad was William Fitzgerald, who was working as a wagon man, Um, but Ella was later told that he played piano too. And her mum was Temperance Tempe Henry. Um,
0: Incredible name. Yeah,
1: yeah, I quite like, yeah, Tempe. Um, They weren't legally married, but they had a common-law marriage and Ella lived here with both her parents for around the first two years of her life. In the early 1920s, Ella and her mother moved to Yonkers in Westchester County, New York, and they moved in with Tempe's partner, well, her new partner, Joseph de Silva, who was a Portuguese immigrant, who Ella would later come to call her stepdad. This was a... it wasn't a high-income neighbourhood, but it was also... it was a mixed-race neighbourhood, and you had lots of people from lots of different areas, You had African-Americans, Italians, Spaniards, you know, Portuguese, like her stepfather. Um, And so this is sort of where Ella ended up growing up.
0: No, it's good that I think that's a really important part and I think comes across in her music is that you, it applies to everyone and everyone feels it, I think, in a very similar way. And I think maybe the fact that she grew up in a place that was so multicultural, obviously I'm sure there was still... um, Racism and like awful uh, racism and divides and social divides between cultures. But I think that um, multiculturalism being a part of her life for so long maybe is part of why her music um, is so kind of universal um, Mm. in a lot of ways.
1: But so this is where she grew up. And again, there's, there's not a huge amount on her childhood, her early childhood. We know that in 1923, her half sister, Francis de Silva, was born. Um, and she was very close to Ella throughout her life. She was one of the few people that Ella had as a sort of close friend.
0: Mm.
1: Um, so Ella started school at the age of six and was noted to be a very capable student. In 1925, the, mamaly- uh, the family moved to School Street, Yonkers. Uh, still in New York, if you don't know <laughs> yeah, Yonkers is. And the family did struggle to make ends meet. So Joe worked as a ditch digger, as well as a part-time chauffeur to make money. And now... I found several sources saying that Tempe worked in a laundromat, which seemed bizarre to me, and I looked it up, and the first laundromat was opened in 1934, so that's way after this. So I'm I'm going to assume that she worked in a wash house?
0: Yeah, or she worked in a laundromat later in her life, and that's just a fact that somebody has picked up somewhere.
1: Well, no, because, spoiler alert, she didn't. Um, (laughs) Okay. (laughs) um, But I think, basically, it might have been... um, a wash house that later became a laundromat. And so it'd be like, oh yeah. Um, sure. You know, she that makes here. sense. But anyway, essentially, you know, both parents with jobs, Joe De Silva working two jobs. I say both parents, her stepdad and her mum. Mm. So Ella has said on multiple accounts later in her life that she was a tomboy growing up. She liked playing baseball with other kids from the neighbourhood, which her family were quite disapproving of, sadly, because that sounds quite cool. <laughs> She would take the train into Harlem to see acts at the Apollo Theatre throughout her childhood. Well, teenage years. And just to put this into context, this was 1920s in America. The jazz culture was booming. Mm. um, And Harlem itself had recently transformed into a black residential and commercial area after big migrations in the 1910s from the south.
0: Is that Um. when the Harlem Renaissance was?
1: I would assume so I don't know about that as a specific thing is yeah that a, is
0: that yeah a recognized... i i was I was pretty certain that it was, but essentially like the Harlem Renaissance um was this massive like boom in um like african American somewhat like more mainstream but also just like variant cultural output um and it was like centered in Harlem and it was like this kind of like revival of um like culture and music and dance and art and intellectualism and like kind of the like salon culture that was happening in France in the 1920s but happening in these like more working class black areas uh of of New York City um and there's some like really really incredible stuff that came out of out of the Harlem Renaissance and I think we should I need to personally look it up because there's you know uh I don't know I should know more about it. It's really fucking cool.
1: <laughs> well, no, yes, so that that aligns with what I what I have here. I didn't. I don't have the f- formal terms Harlem Renaissance, but yeah, during the nineteen tens, essentially, you had these big migrations of black communities, essentially, setting up in Harlem and it becoming transformed to. What, what I I would still recognise that sort of the nature of it today. Mm. Um, but her idol, who she saw at the Apollo Theatre, was a chap called Earl Snakehips Tucker
0: get it snake hips
1: now i've just sent you a youtube video and i appreciate this isn't the best podcast content but i'd encourage anyone who can right now to take a look at earl snake hips tucker okay on YouTube, if you just look that up
0: do you want me to record my he reaction is to
1: amazing oh yeah yeah just put it on um and i i just you know we'll cut it out if, if this bits rubbish but so just just for the audience as far as i can tell this chap does some very early form of of mooner of moonwalking almost. It's it's quite weird, and his hips. Move Those are some snaky hips. Snake. snake hips. You see, the name is very fitting. <laughs> um, I just think it's just the best dancing. But yeah, so <laughs> that was a uh, that was Ella's <laughs> idol um, when she was a teenager because she wanted to be a dancer. Mm. Um, That was her dream, and like there are accounts of her dancing on her way to school and performing for her friends at lunchtime, Um, and then when she was a little bit older, she would perform in clubs around Yonkers with a friend of hers, you know, for a few pennies here and there.
0: So when did she discover that singing was her true calling?
1: Well, we'll get on to that in a minute. She did sing during this time, because her family were Methodists, and they attended the Bethany African Methodist Episcopal Church, um, where she went to services and Sunday school every Sunday, and she sung in the church choir which was cool. the Westchester Plains Corps Group. Um, and so that was basically... That's that's about as much as I have on her early childhood. But then in 1932, Tempe dies. Her mother dies. Noted, two years before the first laundromat opens. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> the, pro, quite possibly the most important thing about that fact. So, yeah, mm-hmm. so when she was, what, 14 years old?
1: Um, 15, I think.
0: So such a, like... Um, Pivotal point in her life.
1: Yeah, well, she's effectively orphaned. You know, she doesn't. She's never met. Well, she knew her dad till she was two, so she can't remember her father at all. Mm. And even if she, you know she could, he he lives in Virginia, and her mother's just died. She is, you know, for all intents and purposes, she's been orphaned.
0: And her father doesn't re-enter her life at any point.
1: No, he doesn't. Um, but there's conflicting stories as to how Tempe dies, and. The accepted one now is that she had a heart attack. That's that's the one more supported by evidence. Mm. But the one that Ella purported during her life was that she died saving a child from a car crash. Wow. Which feels... And, you know, of course, if that is true, that is amazing. And, I, I you know, I, I don't have all the evidence to make a distinction. But this does sort of seem in line with Ella uh, sort of... whitewashing her childhood a bit you know trying to make things seem a bit more glamorous than they were
0: i don't know if it's necessarily glamorous obviously we don't we don't know what happened but i think maybe it's more um that that being the story whether it was or not you know I, i'm in, um inclined to believe her just because i want to um but that being the story somehow helps to rationalize what happened to her and the tragedy of that experience because it makes it worth something and it makes it something that she can physically grasp onto as you know she died a hero or whatever and I think that yeah it is a really important you know turning it from a tragedy to a way to kind of um make her mother you know saint-like to her makes a lot of sense for somebody who loses a a parent at such a pivotal age
1: yes and of course you know i i I can't you know relate to this um and perhaps i shouldn't be commenting on it but i you know for all intents and purposes it would be my my understanding from what i've read and from the different sources that essentially it probably was a heart attack Um, Mm. but again as you say if this if this is a story and if it did help her then that that's more than understandable and you know entirely justifiable. But yeah, so Ella is, as I say, effectively orphaned at 15. And so she's left living with her stepdad. But essentially he starts abusing her.
0: Oh, awful.
1: The extent of this isn't well documented. Again, Ella didn't really talk about these things. So the evidence we have on this is is sort of slim. We know it was at least emotionally and physically. There are thoughts that it could have been sexual too, but this isn't massively supported by the evidence. I really don't know. Either way, it was a terrible, terrible life for Ella. Mm. Um, she lived there for most of the next year of her life before she moved in with uh, Virginia, who was her mother's sister, in Harlem in 1933. Into Harlem? Yes, yes, exactly. Closer to, this, uh, to the Harlem Renaissance. And a short time later, Joe De Silva also died of a heart attack. So Francis moved in with Virginia, Ella's aunt, and Ella in Harlem. And Ella didn't deal with this massively well. (laughs) I mean, I think understandably. Her grades crashed and she started skipping school. She earned some money by running numbers for local gamblers. Some sources say her her aunt was involved in this and that's why she got into it. Again, that's only a couple of sources I don't know. But there's also some evidence that she may have worked as a lookout for a local brothel too. Mm. during this time.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, when you're a working-class person with with few um, options, um, especially in big cities, like, neither of us has ever properly lived in in a big city. We both, you know, left our tiny rural place to go to small, barely cities. Um, But I think that all of that, every single aspect of it, is completely understandable. And, in fact, I think there's this idea... of like revolutionarily incredible people should never have any of these human aspects to their stories um whereas i think yeah. this isn't a uh oh was she a bad person at one point it's oh she has yes. a, the story of a human person
1: oh, oh yeah no same, entirely, you know? this, this this isn't a condemning thing on her at all
0: oh i know um, absolutely
1: it's again it's just she had a very public image of who she was yes and this wasn't a time in her life that was part of that. Um, and so I just, I think it's an interesting thing. Um, By the way, St Andrews isn't a city. St Andrews is a town. Is it? Yeah, it's, it's actually... So, hang on. If I look at the population of St Andrews. So, St Andrews' population is around 16,800.
0: Oh, wow. Um, Did you say 16,000? Yeah. I, this is deeply uninteresting i'll
1: google it later carry on it is uninteresting so let's get on with the first lady of jazz so she was involved in these illegal activities around this time you know again she was sort of 15 16 and she got picked up by the authorities basically which was the new york state training school for girls and this was in hudson new york
0: and it treated her incredibly well and nothing bad happened and it was the shining example of a wonderful and nurturing government institution?
1: Not exactly. Okay. Um, so, again, she was formally sentenced, is the word that was used, which I'm not sure, but like a, a judge basically said she was ungovernable and will not obey the just and lawful commands of her mother, which would have actually been her aunt, but yeah. So, she was sentenced, again, that's in air quotes, which I'm not sure how to do on a podcast yet. Sure. For three to five years. It was a mixed school, but Black girls were housed in separate accommodation that was massively overcrowded. And according to a 1996 report in the New York Times, so like way later looking back, you know, on Fitzgerald's life, Ella was excluded from the school choir as it was only for white girls. Mm. And Ella and the other girls there were subjected to physical abuse and solitary confine- uh, confinement, which was backed by both annual reports and state investigations.
0: And I think if you think about what was thought of as abuse at the time, um, it was obviously very different to what is recognised and known to be abuse now. Um, yeah. But you just think about if that's sort of what's being put in the report, what was genuinely happening and how much worse it most likely was for her as a young yes, black probably. woman instead of the young white women, who I'm sure it was also awful for, but not as bad. Um, it's it's quite shocking to even try to imagine.
1: So in late 1933, she ran away. (laughs) Quite understandably, I think. And appears to have spent most of 1934 homeless. You know, dancing and singing on the street for any loose change and bed and board, wherever she could. And just again a bit of context that I'm sure everyone knows, this is around the time of the Great Depression. It is not a good time to be homeless. It is not a good time to be homeless in New York. It is not a good time to be a 16-year-old black girl Homeless in New York.
0: Hmm. I don't think there is a good time to be a 16-year-old black girl homeless in New <laughs> York. But yes, absolutely. This is a time of massive devastation, massive despair. And she's been essentially dropped right in the middle of it with very little to help pull herself out of that situation. In fact, nothing. Yep.
1: Yeah. And so this is how she spent around a year of her life. Until and again, we have these pivotal moments in the lives of these people we talk about, and this this was one of them for Ella. On the 21st of November, 1934, she took part in an amateur talent competition at the Apollo Theatre. Now, she had originally planned to dance. She wanted to be a dancer. Dancing was sort of her passion. You know, it was it was what she loved to do. But she changed her mind right before going on stage, because the act before her was the Edward sisters, which was a a sister tap dance, essentially. Oh, cool. And were apparently, you know, so amazing. She got quite intimidated. And it may also have been, you know, she looked quite ragged. She'd been living on the streets for a year. And so she decided last minute to sing. Um, And when she first went on stage, the crowd began to boo her because she looked raggedy. She looked, you know, a complete mess, basically. And then she started to sing. And by the end, essentially, the crowd was roaring.
0: So and she won
1: the competition. What
0: you're telling me is this is, um, is uh, the 1930s young black woman Susan Boyle story.
1: Yes. Or yeah, and I, I and she just to interject on that point. Ella wasn't regarded as being a particularly good-looking woman um, at any point in her life, really, and. <sighs> It sounds awful, but that goes against you in any sort of popular entertainment you're trying to do, especially in this era. Oh yeah, absolutely. So Susan Boyle is is a fitting analogy that no one expected this from her. But yeah, so she um she won the competition. I couldn't find what she won. I looked into it. People didn't really comment on it much because that wasn't really the point because essentially good things ended up coming from the competition in other ways, which I'll get on to now. Cool. So she did this, this was November 1934, um, but her life didn't immediately get better. She spent, you know, a bit longer on the streets. And sort of around this time, a man called Chick Webb was looking for a female singer in his band. Chick Webb. And I just want to go Webb. On to Chick Webb Love a little it. bit here. Chick Webb. Right. So Chick Webb was a drummer and band leader. He was, you know, regarded as one of the best drummers of the new swing style. And in nineteen thirty one so a few years before this, his band had become the official band of the Savoy ballroom oh cool chick Webb's an interesting character in, a, in and of himself he's a so he was a black man, and as an injury uh, as an injury as a child, he had an injury falling down the stairs um, where he essentially he damaged several of his vertebrae um, and developed tuberculosis of the spine as a result of this injury which mm. he, like spread from his lungs um and the doctors told him to to play an instrument to loosen his bones was the idea. And he wasn't well off growing up and he'd saved up enough money as a newspaper boy to buy his first set of drums. So the story has this sort of micro-story of Chick Webb, Mm. um, which I think is pretty cool. I think
0: a lot of these stories kind of have these interesting people who in the particular story we're telling is a side character, but their own story, the story in which they are the main character, is fascinating in and of itself. And the reason they end up being so important in the stories of these people we're talking about is because there's a part of them that understands um the experience understands what they're going through no what i said no we don't like chick webb
1: we don't not massively we don't hate him but so chick webb was looking for a female singer to join with his band and he asked his lead singer charles linton to find one essentially we like charles linton okay so Linton had heard of Ella's performance from a friend and basically tracked her down, and listened to her sing, and was understandably amazed by Ella. But on presenting her to Webb, he said, this man who's been through so much hardship himself, you're not putting that on my bandstand.
0: That's not very nice. Um, and also, biggest mistake of his fucking life.
1: Well, it would have been. But Charles Linton was so amazed by Ella that he went over Chick Webb's head. Now, this is Chick Webb's band. And he threatened to quit if his manager, Charlie Buchanan, wouldn't listen to Ella sing. Incredible. Um, And so he did. Again, he wanted to earn the band, and so she joined. After a two-week trial, Webb made Ella his lead vocalist. So at the age of 17, Ella began performing with the Chick Webb Band at Harlem's Savoy Ballroom.
0: Wow. That's such a sudden, it must have been such a sudden and emotionally jarring turnaround in life.
1: Yeah, and I think, so this seems quite young, and of course it is quite young, but the amount of hardship she's faced in the sort of years between 15 and 17, her mother dying, being abused by her stepdad being abused in an institute, living on the streets. This all happened in an incredibly short time. It was like two and a half years or something.
0: So she's an incredibly mature person, you've got to imagine.
1: Yes. Well, yeah, she, she'll have been through a lot. Um, um. So, yeah, Ella's now part of the Chick Webb Band. I think it was the Ch- Chick Webb and his orchestra or something to that effect. Um, and she recorded several songs with them. Uh, before her first big hit. And actually, I have a statistic here that she recorded 150 songs with them between 1938
0: and 1942. Damn, that's
1: prolific. But her first big hit was A Tisket A Tasket, which was released in 1938 when she was 21. Um, So this was 2nd of May, 1938. Do you know A Tisket A Tasket?
0: I don't know A Tisket A Tasket.
1: Okay, Um, so it's since become a jazz standard. Um... And was actually uh, inducted into the uh, Grammy Hall of Fame in oh, cool. 1986. So a pretty good song, and it was based on a nursery rhyme in America that had been brought over by English colonists, which was sung while the kids played a game that was essentially Duck Duck Goose. And it's something like a I a tasket, I lost my yellow basket, but you know, with a tune.
0: But but sung by Ella Fitzgerald, not y- you. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I sort of had this thing there where I kind of wanted to give an impression of sort of what it sounded like, but I didn't actually want to try and sing it (laughs) because I just wouldn't be able to do any justice. So, reportedly, they only practiced it for an hour before recording, which is possibly true because it's not a massively complicated song, but somehow I suspect that's apocryphal. Mm. Um, And Chick Webb actually had to convince Decca Records, who were their label at the time, um, to release it. Uh, They didn't initially want to release this song. Because, again, it was based on a nursery rhyme. And it is, I don't know, possibly juvenile because of that. But there's something in it.
0: Um, that, and that something but, is Ella Fitzgerald's.
1: Well, exactly. They did release it. And it did very well. So it was released on the 2nd of May, 38. It hit the number 10 spot in the charts in America on the 18th of June. And it reached number one by the 25th. And in total, it ended up spending 19 weeks in what was then the equivalent of the US top one hundred.
0: Wow, that's incredible. Um
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh and when I again I so I said the US equivalent well so the equivalent of the US top one hundred. Then they didn't have a formal thing but they had magazines that essentially ranked them and everything and there was a sort of semi established thing that tracked things like this. Mm. And in the charts it was evaluated by sheet music sales as well as record sales. So which I think is quite cool. You know, this was before the time when uh recordings of music were immensely immensely available and so a lot of people bought sheet music and would play these songs and
0: wow so yeah. it was such <laughs> a much more immersive experience in a lot of ways yes. Yeah.
1: but so this song um, just another figure here it sold a million copies by 1950 um, and it made Ella famous and that was her first well not her first big break but her first big hit you know one that basically reached the nation, I guess, so that was nineteen thirty eight in June of nineteen thirty nine Chick Webb died, and Ella became the band leader. Wow, Ella Fitzgerald and her famous orchestra, but this band it, it didn't last massively long, and they disbanded in nineteen forty two because of dissent and money problems.
0: see, I really thought we were going to go with World War two, but okay. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well it that too, perhaps. I didn't show up, I didn't even clock that World War II was happening. It at didn't that time register that,
0: that there was quite a key it was quite a key moment in history at this time.
1: Yeah, I saw that's I feel quite awful. I completely forgot about World <laughs> War Two.
0: I just uh, I feel like there was something going on in the nineteen forties, but I Huh.
1: I think possibly I just wasn't looking at it in that context. That wasn't on my mind. I was just following Ella. And that didn't really touch her so tangibly. I mean, of course it did. It, it, it hit everyone in the world. You it heard it hit like, first,
0: kids. Ella world Fitzgerald was world. not world. impacted
1: by World War Two at all. She didn't even know it was happening, guys. It made no mark on Incredible
0: her Incredible jazz singer, but really oblivious to like international affairs.
1: Um. But anyway, so okay so what i kind of did with ella fitzgerald i'd researched this far right i would like to say just now i have got way more research here don't worry um but i sort of get it to the point where she's famous and she's switching from this label to this label at this date and does this on this date and all sort of performed with this person on this date, and it sort of all got a little bit meaningless and became like a list of things that happened Mm. so that was her rise to fame and i think that is possibly the most important part of the story, you know, the things she went through, where she got to, and then for the rest of it, I sort of I took some notes on the key parts of her life and some anecdotes as well as essentially the end of her life mm. and I just think just might cut this on the podcast, but like that was my thinking so as not to make this too long because oh. I've been trying to cut back a bit, but like just to you know talk really in depth about how these people got from where they were to where they ended up, whether that's over the course of their life or over a short time period, and then just sort of talk perhaps a little bit less in depth about other parts of yeah, their life. Yeah,
0: that makes sense.
1: Okay. Um, so first up, I'm going to go with a couple of marriages that Ella had. <laughs> um, the first was in 1941, where she married a dock worker called Benny Cornegy. Um, supposedly in search of stability, I think it was, was the idea.
0: Because if there's one thing that's never going to become de-industrialised and struggling, it's port towns.
1: <laughs> exactly. But I quite like the idea that, you know, she is quite a famous person by this point, And she, you know, married a, a dock worker, um, which is quite sweet. But anyway, that marriage got annulled in 1942 when she learned that he was a convicted drug dealer.
0: Well, that went from 100 to zero. Oh, yeah. that's sweet. You yeah. know, marrying for love.
1: Um... <laughs> Didn't go great. Um, her second marriage was in 1947 to um, Ray Brown, who was apparently a famous space player. I'd not heard of him, but I am from a slightly different era. Mm. Um, who she'd met on tour. Um, they adopted a child together who'd been born to Ella's half-sister, if you remember her from earlier, Frances. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, who was called Ray Brown Jr. Oh. But this this felt a little bit un- unfair because they sort of un- adopted this child but because they spent most of their time touring the child was largely raised by Ella's aunt, Virginia. So I don't know how much they actually adopted that child maybe just legally.
0: <laughs> I think um, that um. as an aspect of life was a lot more normalised at the time though kind of children being raised by family members. Um,
1: yeah, but... The reason it sort of seems a little bit confusing to me is because Francis, well, Virginia was Francis' aunt as well.
0: Mm. So It felt like an unnecessary middle step, is what you're saying.
1: Yeah, yeah. Virginia could have just raised her on behalf of Francis. I don't know. But either way, they got divorced in 1953, six years later, due to career pressures uh, on both sides. But they remained friends, apparently. Um, so that's that's nice. That's nice. So that was sort of the marriage side of her life. <laughs> she had hits with various artists in the early 1940s as her singing shifted toward the new style of bebop. Mm-hmm. She was a, a master of scatting, basically. And New York Times called Flying Home, which was released in 1945, one of the most influential jazz vocal records of the decade.
0: I think um, of all time, Probably.
1: Well, yes, but they really didn't have the foresight to say that.
0: <laughs> of course, but now that we do, I don't know necessarily which album of hers or if we could just say that. I think we absolutely can't just say that for her whole career, you know, but...
1: Yeah, she was she was very talented. And what, like, scatting in particular, she was known to be very good at because many people think her perfect pitch. She could very easily just... She had the tune. She didn't have to, you know, so she could just make sounds and it would sound amazing. <sighs> Yeah, I don't know. She's just really good at it. Basically, I'm not a singer. I can't comment too well.
0: I am, and I'd love to say that it's a hard cross to bear.
1: I'd like to jump in here and say that though Walla may be a singer, she's not a good singer. <laughs> um, another very significant part of uh, Fitzgerald's life was activism. Possibly not as ferociously as our as our person last week, but and I think this is a a cool little. I Story? I don't know. So in 1949, um, a chap called Norman Granz recruited Fitzgerald for the jazz at the Philharmonic Tour. And this tour would specifically target segregated venues. And then the director, this Norman Granz, as I said, would uh, require these venues to ensure that there was no coloured or white seating. He also made sure that Fitzgerald got equal pay and accommodations, regardless of the fact that, you know, she was a black woman. And if these conditions were not met, they then cancelled the shows. That's
0: fucking iconic.
1: Right? How amazing is that?
0: This idea of kind of using capitalism and stuff like that to the advantage of social movements is something that um, was a really, really incredible thing that was kind of pioneered um, by the African-American civil rights movement. Um, They did similar things with on kind of a smaller scale with sit ins and stuff in restaurants that were segregated because if they just sat there, they weren't technically doing anything wrong, but if they sat there, continued to patronise it, um, eventually people just sort of had to give in. Um, I don't know. I think um
1: Interesting It really almost cool. sounds like ethical consumption under capitalism. No. If I if I had to find a way to phrase it. There's
0: <laughs> <laughs> Fine. Do you want? There's no ethical consumption under late capitalism.
1: I don't know why you keep calling it late capitalism.
0: <laughs>
1: you're not gonna. I. Unless you are involved in some plot that definitively knows you're going to end it, then you know it could be the dawn of capitalism. or like, It could get much, much.
0: It's awkward, about to use your perception. It's worse. a political theory about the uh, the cycles of. Um, economic uh like systems and i will send you the graph Oof, don't leave like this Understand
1: economic systems <laughs> right, um i should know i don't either <laughs> I, I saw a book once it was in a cambridge bookshop that was like quantum mechanics for economics <laughs> i was like nope too far sorry i need to get rid of the smile on my face <clears throat> so uh, I've got a little anecdote here. Um, anecdote's not the right word. An incident in 1954 um, of racial discrimination, essentially, which caused Ella to miss the first two concerts of a tour in Sydney, which was that four members of uh, Ella's group, which was you know, herself, her pianist, her assistant and cousin, and this same manager, Norman Granz, they all had first-class tickets on a flight from Honolulu to Australia. But having already boarded were ordered to leave and weren't allowed to get back onto the aircraft to retrieve their luggage and their clothing. Um, and as a result, ah. were stranded in Honolulu for three days before they could get another flight to Sydney. And so the manager ended up having to arrange another two concerts later on that were free to compensate ticket holders who had you know, not seen Ella perform. Um, and I think this is just to emphasise, and, you know, I say this, I really hope that everyone listening... Of course people you know how, well, they don't know, but of course people have an idea of how hard it would have been to be just a black person at all at this point, but especially a black popular figure. And I just, you know, I hope this story reinforces that this was prevalent. It it, it would happen, you know, this sort of thing wasn't even that unheard of. Um, but the the upside of this is that they, they sued and uh, later won a not unconsiderable amount, I think it was referred to. Um so that's pretty fab. Second half. First half is less fab.
0: It's also very important to recognise here that like obviously perhaps there were less things that you could refer to as like direct action in some in these parts of her life, but existing as a um black woman and existing as a black woman very much in the public eye was revolutionary and was yeah powerful and was activism in and of itself
1: yeah exact mondo uh. <laughs> another interesting fact was that she was a, a very close friend of marilyn monroe <laughs> cool um, and when monroe was asked about uh, her favorite singer uh she answered well my very favorite person and i love her as a person as well as a singer i think she's the greatest and that's ella fitzgerald
0: that's nice, isn't
1: it? Yeah, and it it actually gets better because um, Monroe helped Ella essentially with her career. Um, there's an incident uh, in March 1955 where essentially Monroe lobbied the owner of the Macambo Club, uh, nightclub on Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood, for Ella to perform there. I'm so and glad she I got the
0: opportunity was... to do that before JFK killed her.
1: Well, yes, exactly. <laughs> she knew secrets, Orla um but yeah so basically what, what had happened was monroe had said that if you know marilyn monroe being a very big name around the time she'd said that if the owner booked ella um for a week then she would marilyn monroe would get a front row table for every day of that every night of that week so that it would draw people in because she'd be in the club
0: yes bitch use that privilege for good that is incredible
1: yeah, and it, it really it really helped, um it really helped Ella Fitzgerald's career and it really raised her profile. And if if you Google Ella Fitzgerald and Marilyn Monroe, there's some uh quite cute photos. Um Aww. of them together. I just yeah, it's really sweet. Um but yeah, so I just thought that was quite cool. Um And yeah, that's that's the main you know, what I've got from the bulk of her life. Again, she did so many amazing things at this time. She appeared in some, you know, cameos in early te- in early films. Well, early films as we would think of them today, with sound and picture. Crazy. Um, she performed, just to name a few, with Frank Sinatra, Duke Ellington, uh, Louis Armstrong and Count Bassey. She did so many amazing things, but I just, I don't particularly want to just list out, <laughs> I don't know, I don't want to make this a list of, she did X. She did Y. She did Z. Because that's sort of what it becomes. It becomes her doing a lot of the same things. Um, and yeah, I don't know if that would be. And that is time you could spend to listen
0: to. listening to Dream a Little Dream on me.
1: Well, exactly. Um, if people disagree of- with this this weird new way that I'm trying to do this, by the way, please feel free to write in and let us know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so now I'd like to talk about the end of um, Ella's life. Um, I keep calling her Ella, which feels weird.
0: My girl, Ella.
1: But yeah, so... Ella wasn't in the best of health later from life. She suffered from diabetes. I don't know what... I'm not particularly well informed on diabetes. I don't know what type. I couldn't find out.
0: If it developed later in um, her life, it would have been type 2 diabetes. Most likely. Be, there we
1: go. I thought maybe, but I didn't want to say it without knowing. But essentially, she had a lot of complications from this. In 1986, she had, a quintu- uh, quintuple? Quintuple. she had a quintuple coronary bypass and a heart valve replacement You know, after being diagnosed with congestive heart failure and diabetes. This is when it was recognised. Um, and her eyesight also began failing as she approached her 70s. And press around the time basically speculated that she would never perform again. Mm. But she proved them wrong because oh, in yeah, March 1990... She performed in the Royal Albert Hall in London with Count Bassey, oh, uh, sorry, with the Count Bassey Orchestra. Uh, it's to Count celebrate the launch of. It's so not.
0: I'm pretty sure it is.
1: Oh, wow, well, there we go. <laughs>
0: and do you want to know how I know this? There was a really how? bad rom com on Netflix starring Adam Devine um, called When We First Met, and it has. Him and Alexandria Daddario in it, and in it she is this like completely wet blanket love interest. But oh, I've seen her... it. It's
1: amazing. Oh, yes, great. but yeah, yeah. her
0: favorite jazz musician is Count Basie, and that is the only reason I know that name.
1: Yeah, see, I did not, re- I did not remember that part from it. And uh, you know, I never knew his name was um Adam Divine. Yeah. What do you know? The things you learn.
0: yeah the more you know. <laughs>
1: Okay, cool, cool, cool.
0: So she (laughs) performs with Count Basie?
1: (laughs) Yeah, sorry, let me try I'll do that again because I've said it wrong now. Um, She proved them wrong. In March 1990, she performed in the Royal Albert Hall with the Count Basie Orchestra to celebrate the launch of Jazz FM.
0: That's so recently. Um, Yeah. Like, Taylor Swift was alive.
1: Cool. In 1993... She was started to have a uh, severe circulatory... Circulatory? I'm doubting everything I say now. She started having severe circulatory issues, um, you know, caused by the diabetes, and she had to have both her legs amputated below the knee. Oh, I didn't so know I... that. Yeah, so for all I know, Orla, she may also have had a motorised wheelchair and therefore could fight against Judy Human's motorised wheelchair.
0: I don't know that I like the direction that's got it in. <laughs>
1: Um, and there we go. Advantage gone. Go team, Sid. <laughs> That's
0: definitely not the message we should be taking <laughs> from this. We've made a mistake.
1: So Fitzgerald contributed to uh, charities, you know, heavily throughout her life, specifically children's charities, which again backs up, makes sense given uh, the abuse she received um, as a child. But in 1993. Um, Fitzgerald established the Ella Fitzgerald Charitable Foundation, which focused on charitable grants for academic opportunities for children, music education, basic care needs for the less fortunate, and medical research revolving around diabetes, heart disease, and vision impairment.
0: Ah, so all things the government should be doing.
1: Well, yes, exactly. And while we're on that note, please, please, please... If you have a pound to spare, help an NHS in need today. (laughs) So, carrying on. (laughs) Um, Sorry, I just hate the NHS being run as a charity. But then at the same time, I don't hate it so much that we shouldn't prop it up if we have the means to, because... It is helping people.
0: I agree with you. It's a very complicated issue that I have a lot of very different emotions about. I'm afraid that turning the NHS into something that's seen as a charity normalises the idea of moving towards privatisation. But at the same time, the NHS is so massively underfunded that in some ways, if we don't do this... um... Well, it's not
1: just underfunded, but poorly run, I think. Like, (laughs) yes, underfunded, but so like contracting work in hospitals can only be done by authorised contractors, which, again, not a bad idea, except there are so few that they can just charge extortionate prices. Oh, it's and the, the same sort of thing in that...
0: prisons. It's why infrastructure in prisons is so awful, because um, the there are certain contractors, in, uh, cl- including, um, I think it's Carillion or something, the one that the government gave everything to, and then it got all fucked up. Anyway, the government's run badly. Just fuck the Tories, don't ever fuck a Tory, um,
1: Ella Fitzgerald. What about your friend Tory?
0: Uh, do you know what? My friend Tory is great. If you're both consenting, you should absolutely fuck my friend
1: Tory. <laughs> I wasn't, ta- I'd like to very much clarify, I wasn't talking about me there. I was just talking about, in a general sense, it felt like you were sabotaging your friend's <laughs> love life.
0: Oh, I'm not. I promise. I love you, Tory. Get it, gal?
1: <laughs> no, no one fuck Tory. It's not allowed. <laughs> Um, And I need to bring down the mood a, a bit here. I need a bit of a transition because um, Injured Puppies On the 15th of June 1996 Ella Fitzgerald died at age 79 of a stroke in her home in Beverly Hills um, And I just want to finish off my uh, Ella Fitzgerald episode With a little quote here. Because I've decided I'm going to sign off each of my people with a quote. I quite like doing that. Um, And this is in 1954. uh, After being asked to sing at a night in her honour. Celebrating 19 years in show business. Which feels like a bit of a rogue number. But (laughs) hey-ho, I checked. It is accurate. It was celebrating 19 years in show business. Um, It's a changeable
0: industry. Who knows if she was going to get to 20?
1: (laughs) Well, exactly. And it goes... As follows. So like the pause there. It's nice. Um, I guess what everyone wants more than anything else is to be loved, and to know that you loved me for my singing is too much for me. Forgive me if I don't have all the words. Maybe I can sing it, and you'll understand. Oh. And that—that that was Ella Fitzgerald.
0: Yeah. yay Thank you very much. oh that's so nice it's so nice i'm gonna go listen to dream a little dream of me
1: yeah which she didn't actually she wasn't the first person to perform that
0: yeah but she was the best
1: yes no i completely agree but like in my head that had been her i know it is still her song i don't know in my i i just
0: it's like i will always love you was a dolly parton song before it was a whitney houston song but it's a whitney houston song
1: I didn't know that Whitney Houston sung it. I didn't know that Dolly Parton sung it. I knew that it was a song. <laughs> okay, fair uh, enough. <laughs> it's, yeah, I don't know. It's, I always feel a little bit weird about covers because I'm like, how much credit do I give you for this? Because I have a huge amount of respect for people who write songs. Possibly more respect than, people, than I do for people who sing them. Um,
0: I don't know what the answer is, to be honest.
1: Yeah, I don't know. It's an awful lot of skill to sing very well, of course to write I d- however craply I can sing to some extent I can to no extent write music
0: <laughs> hey how dare That's you my you once wrote an incredible parody of Fly Me to the Moon about asexual fertilisation or cloning i can't remember which in year nine biology and to be honest the fact that you're not you're saying you're not a songwriter is offensive to that beautiful
1: beautiful piece of music okay first of all it was about pollinization of plants oh second of all i'm not saying i couldn't be a lyricist i think i'd quite enjoy being a lyricist i think writing music H- how do you come up with new music I, I don't I'm going to imagine a tune on the spot
0: I would like the people... I'm going to put... Here is a teaser for some stuff coming up on our Instagram. Number one, some incredible Photoshop work. Number two, some uh, photographs demonstrating the beautiful, beautiful differences between my recording setup and Sid's recording setup. <laughs> and you can decide which you think is better. And the, uh, the third and final thing coming up is I'm going to find the lyrics to Sid's version of Fly Me to the Moon about polonisation. I'm going to find the lyrics to my version of Blank Space by Taylor Swift about cloning. And I'm going to see which one the people think is better.
1: Mine is better. It just utterly is. It's, it's just, also it's not though, a better it? song. Everything was better.
0: <laughs> You're saying Fly Me to the Moon is a better song than Blank Space. Bold. Bold. You take that back.
1: Yeah. I stand by that. Who is still going to be talking about blank space in 70 years? I'm t- t- Taylor Swift you can't come up with you can't come up with an art tooler. it's Me? just a blank space where your answer should be.:
0: You cannot <clears> argue that rev that 1989 was not a revolutionary album, and also I find the fact that you didn't think my Taylor Swift was born then a woman who was famously born in 1989 joke was funny when we were talking about 1990. I felt that went over your head and it disappointed me.
1: <laughs> it did. I didn't know she was born in 1989. She
0: was famously born in 1989.
1: Fam- yeah, famous if you, like, you know, know a lot about her. No! I know she writes music. She's no really good at singing. one has
0: ever been more famously born in a year. Um... Name one person who was famously born in a year.
1: Okay. I will. <laughs> Queen Elizabeth.
0: Was famously born in what year?
1: Well, I didn't know when Taylor Swift was born, <laughs> so <laughs> Okay, okay. I feel like most people know when Queen Elizabeth was born. How long do you think it takes me to edit an hour episode of this?
0: Uh about eight hours.
1: No, it's actually it's actually about four hours if, um, if I'm if I'm zooming, which I thought was really slow. I was like, "How could it be taking this long?" And I looked it up, and you know, the average thing is between three and five minutes to edit a minute of podcast. So it turns out I'm. I'd like to average. make it
0: very clear that I do contribute to
1: this podcast experience. <laughs> <laughs> I should... <laughs> I, Sid, I, one, I I can
0: let me edit. <laughs>
1: no it's i don't yeah it's kind of my i i don't know i just i can't seem to give up the control of the editing so i could continue to complain about how much work you make me do all okay um right should we do our sign off yeah so that's everything for this week this has been the latest all can you start
0: sure um, I hate it when Sid says that's all we have time for this week I think it's stupid so we're done um, that was Ella Fitzgerald who are uh, incredible and I'm so grateful that uh, you gave me the opportunity Sid to learn more about her this week um, I've been Aula.
1: And I've been Sid. And this has been
0: The Fate Escape. We hope you'll tune back in next week.
1: If you have any comments on the show or suggestions for people we could do in the future, please feel free to email us at thefateescapepodcast at gmail.com. Or if you're one of these hip youngsters, follow us on Instagram at Bye. Bye!